I'm Chris Cutler. This is probe number 27. America in the late 1950s, inspired by a rising interest in the gamelan, the composer Dennis Murphy decided to build a set of his own. He documented the process in his 1975 doctoral dissertation, Autoxenus American Gamelan, a text which quickly became a practical manual for other instrument builders, of whom it turned out there was quite a number. In fact, by 1983, according to Barbara Benari, there were over a hundred imported or constructed gamelans in the United States. Unlike Harry Parch or John Cage, Murphy wasn't designing a new instrument. He was trying to get as close as possible, using local materials, to one that already existed. And although he mostly cut and hammered his gamelan out of rolled steel, he also repurposed coffee tins and orange juice canisters as resonators, and used milk strainers, circular saw blades, hubcaps and pieces of scrap metal to substitute for other parts of the standard gamelan. There are no recordings of Murphy's original instruments, but here's the set built by Daniel W. Schmidt, one of many who followed his example. This is And the Darkest Hour is Just Before the Dawn, recorded somewhere between 1978 and 1982. On the East Coast, the composer and founder of Gamelan Son of Lion, Barbara Benari, was also building her own instruments on Murphy's model, in her case incorporating a set of hubcaps as surrogates for various small gongs. What's interesting about Son of Lion is that they use their instruments in non-traditional and experimental ways, and they seem more concerned to probe the new sounds and techniques that their instruments suggest than simply to imitate the patterns and approaches associated with the traditional gamelan. Son of Lion was founded in New York in 1975 by three composers, Benari herself, the clarinetist Daniel Good, and Fluxus alumnus Philip Corner. 
with a flexible constitution and a halo of affiliated composers around it, it remains to this day an independent composer's collective answerable to no one. Here's a short extract from Daniel Good's 1980 composition, 40 Random Numbered Clangs, which makes much use of the hubcaps. Written for nine players and a variety of different sized hubcaps, it's performed here by Gamelan, Son of Lion. Three thousand miles away on the other side of the country, the American composer Lou Harrison and his partner William Kolvig had premiered their own set of home-built percussion in 1971. In their case, this was not so much an attempt to replicate the gamelan as to design a set of instruments with which to play, following their friend and fellow Californian Harry Parch, in just intonation. In fact, their first set of instruments was designed specifically for the premiere of Harrison's puppet play, Young Caesar, which required not only instruments pitched in just intonation to represent Western culture, but also instruments tuned pentatonically to represent Eastern culture. The name they applied to their inventions, American Gamelan, was, they said, just an afterthought, coined to distinguish their instruments from the traditional kind. Like John Cage, with whom he was closely connected, Harrison had already scored several works for scrap metal, brake drums, hubcaps, tuned bowls, sets of wine glasses and so on. It was no great stretch for him to incorporate tin can resonators and steel conduit tubing, or more ambitiously, a set of hanging dustbins and two oxygen tanks designed to be played with baseball bats into the setup of his American gamelan. Here's an extract from his 1973 composition, La Coro Sutro, which was written for American gamelan, organ, harp and a hundred voices.
The American saxophonist Henry Threadgill first studied percussion and then flute, saxophone and composition at the American Conservatory of Music. In the mid-1960s, he became an early member of the famous Chicago-based Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, before going on to form a series of bands that steered jazz into less familiar territories. At the same time, he continued to compose for theatre, chamber ensembles and orchestras, and was the proud inventor of the hubcapophone, an instrument that surfaces only now and then on his recordings, as it does here in Release, recorded in 1976. Scrap metal and power tools were staple fare for the German percussionist Frank Martin Strauss, later known as F.M. Einheit, who in 1981 joined the Berlin industrial band Einstutz und Neubauten, a band who made a pretty fearsome racket before mellowing out in mid-decade. But the truly hardcore junkyard band was the London Docklands-based test department, who emerged just as the post-war values of redistribution and reconstruction began to give way under the iron rule of Reagan and Thatcher to the 1980s rehabilitation of greed and inequality. Test Department, at least in their public statements, declared war on all of this, forging their resistance out of scrap and industrial hardware, which they hammered together to build musical structures they could then beat the hell out of on stage. Test Department quickly became the go-to guys for large-scale, site-specific events in railway stations, abandoned warehouses and empty factories. And they liked to collaborate, making work with filmmakers, sculptors, dancers and political activists. A Test Department concert would generally be more cathartic than musical, and more to do with spectacle than nuanced commentary. They let the hammers and girders and deafening amplification do the heavy lifting. At root, the band offered corporeality and intellectual erasure, and considered musically, most of what they did seemed depressingly symptomatic of the things that they claimed to reject, except that, unlike, for instance, the Serbian group Leibach, there was no saving irony or sly wit to give it edge. I'll play two extracts from Test Department's fourth release, Programme for Progress, a collection of video materials compiled from footage made between 1982 and 1984 by band member Brett Turnbull and a group of film students from London's Goldsmith College.
A few years later, in 1985, the Finnish composer Magnus Lindberg revived the tradition of bringing junk to the classical stage with his massive craft, scored for orchestra, electronics, five amplified soloists and a great deal of scrap metal. Every performance had to be prefaced by a trip to the nearest junkyard so that the composer and assorted percussionists could pick out nice-looking objects to take back and hit. In the end, however, the music sounds rather familiar and the scrap metal seems to play a largely cosmetic or promotional role, leaving a battery of more conventional percussion instruments to do most of the work. You might identify scrap in this extract, but it's pretty blended in. Perhaps in concert it works better. Like circuit bending, building instruments from scrap is now a commonplace, not just amongst the avant-garde, but also in the mainstream entertainment industry. The long-running theatre show Stomp, for instance, is, at least in respect of its musical content, not so unlike Test Department, at least inasmuch as it showcases somewhat similar muscle-driven, four-to-the-floor rhythmic workouts except that theirs are more artful and forego the deafening amplification and dark accoutrements. Stomp was the culmination of a long-standing partnership between the drummer Luke Creswell and theatre director Steve McNichols, which had evolved through street bands and small-scale theatre work into the presentation of large, ambitious outdoor events that showcased one or other form of massed percussion. The now famous theatre show was developed at their own initiative and expense in 1987 as a linked collection of movement-driven musical routines in which all the sounds were made using multiples of everyday objects boots, brooms, buckets, metal sheets, dustbins, wooden poles, chalk, sand, bananas, cigarette lighters, water and so on. Thirty years later it's still going strong and has been syndicated around the world. In the following extract, the cast are playing dustbins and lids while leaping around in a very tightly choreographed routine that owes as much to Hollywood fight direction as it does to contemporary dance.
and here they are again, jumping and spinning, while they hit lengths of plastic pipe on the floor and against one another. musical and more radical is this extraordinary piece masterminded by the New Zealand composer Philip Dadson and first performed by his ensemble From Scratch at the Auckland Girls Grammar School in 1982. Three identical sets of invented instruments were employed, each consisting of a large array of tuned PVC pipes which are struck at the open end with what look like rubber paddles and matching sets of metal chimes and kerosene cans. Dadson, who'd been a founding member of the London Scratch Orchestra, has built a lot of instruments in his time, many of them from scrap or household objects. This piece, Pacific 3210, was written in 1981 as a protest against nuclear testing and waste dumping in Oceania. It's about 20 minutes long and in many sections. This is an extract from one of them. Thank you. 
American composer and microtonalist Skip LaPlante specifies pipes, styrofoam, bits of wood, alarm bells, glass rods, cooking pots, juice jars, bottles and soda straws in this composition, Glyptodont, written for and performed by his Music for Homemade Instruments Ensemble in 1982. You can find bands who make music with scrap everywhere now. It's even taught in schools. My generation made model trains with toilet rolls and egg cartons. Today it's music with found materials. But here's an intriguing twist on the notion, and although it doesn't fall obviously into our brief, I think it's worth mentioning anyway. In any case, it does make very instructive listening, especially if you concentrate on the sound rather than the music. In Paraguay, in 2006, an environmental engineer, Fabio Chavez, and a rubbish picker, Nicola Gomez, founded the recycled orchestra of Quechua. At that time, Quechua was the home of the country's main landfill. They began by running a program at the tip to show the workers how to make their own instruments out of the scrap, and then how to play them. For instance, cellos were made from tin cans and forks, and flutes from spoons, buttons and old locks, right across the whole range of orchestral instruments. At a purely practical level, this called for a great deal of ingenuity and imagination, not to mention design and metalworking skills. Constructing an entire orchestra this way, and then teaching busy rubbish pickers to play Western classical repertoire on them, to a fairly high degree of competence, is deeply impressive. 
and I'm sure it won't come as any surprise to learn that outside media soon picked this up and turned it into an inspirational news story, a film documentary and a seven-day wonder, provoking a morally complex tangle of responses animated variously by politics, sentimentality and opportunism. The orchestra was soon invited to perform at various prestigious venues, not so much because they played Beethoven or Vivaldi particularly well, though they play it well enough, but because of the story and the exoticism of their fascinating junkyard instruments. In fact, from what they earned, I'm sure they could have bought new instruments if music had been the principal goal of their existence, but it wasn't. This orchestra didn't form out of a need to play its own music, nor was it a story of new sonorities or experimentation, since mostly they played traditional repertoire with a little Paraguayan folk music or the occasional popular arrangement thrown in. It's not even really a story about creative poverty. These instruments weren't fashioned to play a music they really wanted to play, like the spasm bands and jug bands of old. Rather, they were inducted into the Western classical canon for what I'm sure were noble, but also culturally impenetrable reasons. It was a project, and as such, it's been a great success. They toured the world and played to civilians, politicians, royalty and the Pope. They even shared a stage with the metal band Megadeth. That makes a great story. But where's the probe? In this case, I think it's in the potential I wanted to include this project because, although it's an unintended consequence, there really is an extraordinary cumulative timbral quality to the sound these instruments make that gives voice to the materials from which they were made. And that's something that is close to our concerns. If only composers who actually wanted this sound were ready to investigate more deeply, or if the orchestra itself were inclined to commission new works specifically tailored for its unique collection of sonorities. They might even extend their instruments to follow their uniqueness or intensify their nascent qualities. It's a project that trembles on the edge of an opportunity, but perhaps cultural investment in experiment is no longer a given as it once was. In the 1960s, for instance, you could be sure that someone like Mauricio Cargill would have jumped at the opportunity to explore the experimental implications of such an ensemble, and by so doing would have bound what started serendipitously into a wider cultural engagement with innovation and ideas. But not anymore. Matters cultural, it seems, no longer command that degree of interest and commitment. You can judge... Here's the recycled orchestra playing Beethoven's great workhorse, the fifth. Thank you. 
Junk doesn't usually sound like anything in particular, or it sounds like noise. It's a material generally without evocative content, and its use as customised percussion often expresses that. But when Alexander Mosolov introduced a giant metal sheet into his iron foundry, he did it specifically to signify industry, workers, productivity and power. In the same way, Sati and Cocteau had deliberately invoked the workaday world with their typewriter's lottery machine and loaded pistol. And Avramov, with his sirens, planes and ship's horns, unequivocally meant to invoke the October Revolution and Soviet power. Cage, on the other hand, just wanted the sounds to be themselves. So the connections between sounds and meanings like the connections between signs and signifieds, are complex and negotiable and construct their legitimacy in consensual usage. That's why unconventional usage can be so invigorating. I say this because we are now moving into the domestic world of practical and familiar objects, things that, because we use them all the time, come inevitably freighted with associations and meanings. This raises another possibility, that of creative subversion, what Sergei Eisenstein called intellectual montage, by which he meant the creation of new meanings through intentional superposition. Our first appropriation is an early work by the American composer Lamont Young, whose poem for chairs, tables, benches, etc., written for a Fluxus event in 1960, requires that all these things, and any other pieces of available furniture, be dragged across the floor according to precise timings calculated in advance with the aid of a telephone directory or random number generator. This is a particularly well-recorded version of the piece. I think you'd struggle to make it sound this good at home. The Office. Here's the American composer Leroy Anderson, who studied music with Walter Piston and George Inescu. He was also a multilinguist and spent most of the Second World War in Iceland, where he worked with American counterintelligence, although he still found time to write and arrange highly popular light concert music. Blue Tango, for instance, released in 1952, became the first instrumental record ever to exceed a million sales. And in the following year, he wrote this, The Typewriter, which I'm sure you'll immediately recognise. 
I'll play the original 78 RPM recording, which is still the best I've heard. the not-so-light Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki's take on the same instrument, which he included in the 32-strong percussion section of his Fluorescences in 1953. It's an extraordinary work and well worth listening to in its entirety. And here's the Boston Typewriter Orchestra, who play only typewriters and prepared typewriters, amplified but not processed, to impressive effect. There are six typists on this live recording of their Entropy Begins at the Office, made in Boston in 2011.
The typewriter's nemesis, the dot matrix printer, was also the subject, in 1998, of a composition performed many times by two Canadians, the architect Thomas Mackintosh and the composer Emmanuel Madan. In this piece, 12 dot matrix printers, each programmed with patterns of letters or other characters calculated to produce rhythms and pitches, are networked to a coordinating computer. stack of paper to feed those machines, a material explored in some depth by the Chinese composer Tan Dun, who says that in the village of his youth, the local shaman used to use paper to make mysterious and expressive sounds. Dun, in the four movements of his 34-minute paper concerto, gives us the results of his considerable researches into different kinds of paper and different ways of making them sound. I can only give you an impression here, it's a long and varied piece for orchestra and three percussionists. In this extract, the paper is first blown, like a blade of grass, then the whole orchestra turn their music pages in rhythmic unison while the main percussionist plays a huge strip of very long paper, about a metre and a half wide and ten metres high, which is suspended from the fly tower above the stage.
and here all three paperists are snapping small sheets of strong paper to make staccato accents and then a subversive jazz rhythm. Right next to the printer is the mobile phone. Dial Tones is a large-scale concert piece realised solely through the choreographed dialing and ringing of its audience's mobile phones, which is to say that the audience is the performance, although they don't actually control anything themselves. Before the concert, each attendee has to register their phone with the organisers, in exchange for which they are assigned a seat number and a new ringtone. In the course of the concert, their phone will be activated by a small group of musicians who dial them using customised hardware. Since everyone's exact location is known, there's total spatialisation, with every sound precisely positioned, distributed and moved around the listening space. The performance lasts about 30 minutes, during which some 5,000 calls are made. Ringtones was composed for the Ars Electronica Festival in 2001 and is performed here by the composers Golan Levin, Scott Gibbons and Gregory Shakar.
Okay, so a quick once around with the hoover and we can all leave. As performing instruments, vacuum cleaners turn up mostly in the context of comedy, but in the following work they're taken perfectly seriously. This is the American composer Annie Gosfield's homage to her youth, Electric Sweepers and Vacuum Creepers, written in 2015 for the Ecstatic Music Festival in New York. I think we can probably give the kitchen a miss. By now, I think we know all about pots and pans and food mixers, but a quick stop off in the pantry might be in order. The 1960s Fluxus artists were famous for their use of old rubbish and found objects, but Flux artist Alison Knowles just honed in on the bean. She wrote about beans, spoke about beans, made objects and installations with beans, and used them as her instrument of choice. This is an extract from her Sounds from the Book of Bean, which was recorded in 1981 in the studio of glass and soundscape artist Annie Lockwood. In passing, and because we're still in the pantry, I should say something about Knowles' most famous performance piece, Making a Salad, which consisted of Alison mixing a vast salad on a tarpaulin and serving it to the attending public. But here, we're listening only to the beans.
the next episode, it'll be down the garden and into the tool shed. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes. Thank you.